like to invite you all to turn with me in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 19 through 21. Second Peter chapter 1, 19 through 21. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Our brother Stan will now bring us uh, God's message, the gospel and prophecy. Okay, the good news and prophecy. It's been a passion of mine, as you know, to try to uh, bring the good news out as often as I can. Good news is another word for gospel, right? The good news. And so... Today, I'm going to look at, as I have on all the other doctrines of the church, I'm going to look at prophecy and see what the good news is in prophecy. But first, let's look at this. Some of our doctrines try to teach us that the Bible is correct, or why we are the remnant, how important that is. They teach us that God is in control, or they attack Catholicism. Is any of that the gospel? And if the Bible is correct, it's just about the Bible. But shouldn't it be about God? Isn't the Bible given to reveal Christ? It should be about God. And when we talk about the remnant, it's about us. But shouldn't it be about God's love and his providence? And God is in control. Yes, God does have absolute power. But shouldn't this be about his grace and his forgiveness? There's more power there than anywhere. And instead of attack about Catholicism, it's not about them, it shouldn't it be about the virtues of God's truth. So it's a whole different way of looking at things. And my contention and my own personal experience has been that when we look at all of these things through the lens of good news, the gospel, what it tells us about God, how special he is and how unique and wonderful he is, you know, that has power in our lives. It changes people. The other stuff is just information. But this changes people. That's why it's so special. So where is the good news in prophecy? By the way, uh, you don't have to scramble to take a lot of notes today. It's on the internet. Or it will be there in a few days. Just go to the church website and you'll find not only what I'm saying, the audio, but you will see the overheads as well. So you can look at those. Just get on the website. You can find these. Thank you, Albert, who does this for us all the time. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel must inform us about God's character. That's the good news. The whole security of the universe is based upon God's character. And that's what we need to learn about. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Have you read it lately? Read it again. It tells us what love is all about. And God is a God of love. love. It defines him more than anything else. In John's passage, or, uh, Peter's 
Paul's passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is so great about defining what love is all about. When you're loved like that, you, are, you have to love in return. It is the goodness of God, the Bible says, that leads us to repentance or change. So when we know about who God is and his goodness, that has a changing capability in our lives. We love because what? He first loved us. And there's several Bible verses that say that. So it's a response to his love. By meeting our wants and needs and emotions, we turn our hearts towards him. So as God meets us where we're at and solves our problems by revealing himself to us, suddenly a whole new element comes to life. We can see things we couldn't see before. And suddenly our wants are satisfied, our needs are satisfied, and our emotions are satisfied. That's a wonderful thing about God. The gospel makes us search into the heart of God. Not to look at us, or even to others, or even to our beliefs. It takes us to God. Nor to look at the Bible without seeing the God of the Bible. You know, I have spent most of my life reading the Bible for truths, abstract teachings. And there are amazing truths in the Bible. But what really transforms my life is when I look through those truths to find the God who is teaching that. And what do I learn about that kind of a God? Then I am humbled and I am changed. And so the gospel is really important. Not to be awed by God's power or even his authority or his truth. These things can be all detached from feelings. But to be awed by him his amazing character, his love, his mercy, and justice. And so when Jesus says, turn away from me, I never knew you, maybe he's talking about people that only knew the truths and didn't, through those truths, discover him. Right? So let's take a journey into prophecy. And I'm just going to give you just a really compact view today because we can do this, there's so many prophecies, but I'll give you just a compact view today and show you how the gospel can be found in even such a thing as prophecy. Our first prophecy, you probably don't even know about. Uh, but it meant a lot to the pre-flood world. Over to your, your right is the uh, picture of a man named Josephus. How many of you ever heard that name before? He's one of the fellows that wrote a history of the Bible, a Jewish history, Josephus. And he tells the most amazing story on almost the first page in there, He talks about how Adam erected two pillars in the land of Syriad, one of brick and the other of stone, stating that Adam had been informed that the world would face two destructions, a destruction by water and a destruction by flood. One would survive the flood, the other the fo- would survive the fire. This comes out of the blue, out of Josephus. It's a prophecy. And interestingly enough, look what we learn. Here is Josephus saying that Adam predicted that there would be a flood. Do you recognize the name where it says fulfillment? Have you seen that name before? Methuselah? And then when did it happen? In the days of Noah. Now the flood uh, is Methuselah's prophecy. The fire is going to be the lake of fire at the end of days. But notice this, Enoch and Methuselah. Enoch also received information about an upcoming flood. Many ancient commentators have interpreted Methuselah's name to mean, what does it mean? 
When it dies, it shall come. There's some controversy about what Methuselah really means, but many of the ancient ones, that's what they understood this to mean, his name. Now, who died the very year that the flood came, besides all of the people that weren't on that boat? But who died early in that year? Methuselah. How long did Methuselah live? Was he, was he unique in how long he lived? Was he the longest? So what does that tell you? That God just kept putting this thing off because it would be so devastating. Putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. He lived longer than Adam lived. He lived longer than any of his relatives lived. He lived long enough that even his children participated in and his grandchildren in building the ark with Noah. You know, they did this kind of stuff. Methuselah's life was a time prophecy. And God was putting it off because he, was, he knew how horrible this was going to be. Now what do you learn about God in the prophecy about the flood? You already know something about God. What did I just tell you? He's very patient. He's very long-suffering. He knows how horrible what was going to happen and how necessary it was because of the things that was going on. God said that that world prior to the flood was so horrible that even God himself, a God of love, repented that he had made man. That's how bad it got to be. He knew he had to kill the children that he made and he loved. He put it off all that time. Methuselah said, can it go now? Can I go now? Can I go now? <laughs> no. Perhaps, oh, I already mentioned that. So that's the first one. What is the good news about God in that first prophecy that you probably didn't even know existed? By the way, there are a lot of prophecies that we probably don't know existed. What is your first view of God in that one? We already talked about it. Love, mercy, long-suffering. What is God doing in prophecy? When he gave that prophecy about the flood and about fire, that eventually, what is he doing? Preparing. He's warning us. Does he want this to happen? He wants us to escape. Right? How long did Noah preach? 120 years he preached. He doesn't want these things to happen. Are prophecies to be kept secret? Known to just a few people? No, everybody. God wants everybody to know about it. Prophecies have to go everywhere. What is unique about the time element in this prophecy? It was a man's life, right? That's, that's something very unique, how God worked that out. His, you know, <laughs> you might have watched him. By the way, who was his dad? Yeah, his, who's, what was his Methuselah's dad? Lamech, and who was his dad? All right, there you go. So what you have is he's from a very righteous line of righteous people. And, um, and they knew that when they named him that there was something going on because they put that name. And he didn't have much choice in it, did he? He was named. He was the time prophecy when he died. It would have, his whole life. Can you imagine people looking at that man? How's he doing this day? How's he doing tomorrow? You know? <laughs> What lessons can we learn from that? Well, think about it, what that means to us. How God so personally identified this prophecy with an individual, 
with his own life. Pretty profound. Okay, now I'm going to take you to another prophecy. God informs Abraham about many things. He tells Abraham that his descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky, like the sand of the sea, that they're going to be, they're going to be honored and be uh, blessed above all people. And those that bless them will be blessed. You know, and so all these wonderful prophecies that God had said. He said to him, I want you to go down into the land of Canaan and I will give you that land for yourself. Right? And then God comes along just a few chapters later in John, or Genesis chapter 15. And what does he say to him? I have something else to tell you, Abraham. Your descendants are going to be taken away into Egypt. And they're going to be in Egypt for a long period of time. A long period of time. Now, this is interesting. God says all of these wonderful promises. He starts Abraham off, the man who gets all of this wonderful blank check, so to speak. And a little later on, you can read it in Genesis chapter 15, God talks to Abraham again, and Abraham says, God, I don't have a child yet. Where are the promises? How come they haven't been fulfilled? And instead of answering that question, what does God do? Oh, I've got something else to tell you. Your children are going to be in Egypt for 430 years. Whoa. God had told Abraham, expect this. And Abraham says, I'm expecting. (laughs) Hasn't come yet. How long did he have to wait for that child? Quite a long time. And then finally God says, wait, I've got more bad news to tell you. You know, prophecies sometimes aren't always good news. What did this mean to Abraham? No child, after a close to a decade of waiting, God appears, I am thy shield, exceeding great reward. God says, I'm taking care of you. Your descendants will spend now 400 years in Egypt in servitude. Would you give up on God then? You wouldn't? Would you be discouraged? No. How many would be discouraged? I think I would be discouraged. (laughs) Yes, that's the point. The thing about prophecy is that God tells his people what's happening. They're not in the dark, right? He gives them advanced information. He wants them to know just like he knows. It is amazing how that works. And so in 1875 B.C., the prophecy begins. Well, things weren't going as Abraham hoped. Why was God waiting so long? Why did he wait so long to fulfill the promise of the child, the promised child? Why? What do you think? Huh? Build patience? That's always good. Have you ever felt yourself waiting and waiting and waiting for something that God should be doing, doing, doing? (laughs) Right? So can we identify with this? Why would God wait so long to give that promise? In his time. Right. So... Do you think God wanted the child to come? Yes. He desperately wanted that child to come. 
So why is he waiting? Maybe he's helping us to understand what it's like for God himself to have to wait. Because the whole object is for us to learn about God. And maybe we have to go through the process of understanding and having to wait. Has it been true in our lives at times that we've had to wait for things and wait and wait and wait? Sometimes we never see them fulfilled. God ignores Abraham's complaint and tells him instead, there's more problems coming. Have you ever felt God say that to you? Now, maybe you can tell me, how is this good news? How could that be good news? Think outside the box. How is it good news? Give it a try. Anybody have an idea? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's outside the box. She's thinking outside the box, isn't she? I am going to have kids. <laughs> They're going to be in prison, but I'm going to have kids. <laughs> Very good, Carol. You win first prize on that one. <laughs> I like that. She's on top of that one. So that would be good news. You've got to be think, have Carol along on that one. Anything else? It's an ending date. Yeah. yeah. It did say it would come to an end. So you could take this confidence of saying, God doesn't lead us down paths that he's not going to prepare us to go down that path. And by the way, what has God always done in history? What did he end up doing as a result of their years in Egypt in captivity? One of their... One of his descendants was elevated right next to Pharaoh. What happened when Israel, Judah, was taken into captivity to Babylon? One of their princes was elevated right up next to to, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king. So it ended up to be a real blessing in disguise. But God still has to inform. Now here's another one. God informs Moses. Moses is out taking a walk one day and he sees this burning bush and he stops to look at it and take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. And then God tells Moses, remember he told Abraham, you're going into slavery or going into servitude. Now at the end of that time, he brings up another prophet saying, time is now concluded. It's time to come out of servitude. He's raised up Moses. Yes, I didn't know there was a song like that, but that is true. So anyway, so here Moses probably was pretty confident that his life had come to that nice time called retirement, when we don't have to work anymore. You, a lot of you in this church know about that, don't you? Where you don't have to work anymore? Called retirement? Don't tell me it's not true. I'm looking forward to it. Got about three and a half years, maybe four. And it better be what I hope it's going to be. <laughs> well, Moses thought he was there. And so he's out just taking care of sheep. That's the only responsibility he has. And he kind of enjoyed life there. And the bush, there's God. And God is saying, I've chosen you, Moses. You are to go down and take my children out of the land of Egypt. Guide them out. What do I like about that? 
is that you find God using this pronoun, my people. He is identified with those people. They are his. And Pharaoh is not treating his people right. And so God is going to use, maybe you would think, would you say the most likely or the most unlikely character to go back? Because he's still under a death penalty. He had killed Egyptians. He had had to run for his life. And he had found security only outside of Egypt. And God is saying, now, Moses, you're going to go right back where there's a life or a death sentence on you, I should say. And I want you to stand up before Pharaoh, who could execute him on a moment's notice. And I want you to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, just put yourself in Moses' shoes and think about what that would feel like. Standing before who was considered a god by his people, Pharaoh, let my people go. And then there was this contest between gods. Is, it, is uh, Pharaoh really a god or is Moses' god a god? So, he had no intentions of going back, but he would lead them home. Forty years of extreme high and devastating lows they'd experienced in Egypt, not allowed to take them in. Moses wasn't. Uh, and to taken to heaven after his death. So, 40 years, Moses led those people out in the wilderness. And it was good times and bad times, mostly bad times. But even Moses wasn't allowed to take them into the land of Canaan. And they went in after he died. What would you think about God who does that? Did you hear what, just, what we just said? Moses, go in, bring them out. Now I want you to take them to the land of Canaan because of their stubbornness. No, they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. They were really a tough group of people to work with for Moses, right? Moses labored with them, struggled with them for 40 years, going through all the disappointments, and God says, no. You're not the one that's going to take them in. Do you like that kind of a God? Said no. Why? What had he done? Struck the rock instead of command. He struck the rock, representing Christ, and brought the, brought the water out that followed them all those 40 years. They had abundant water. So, do you think, what do you think about that? Not being allowed to take them in. Was that a bad news? Do you find sometimes bad news and good news kind of mixed up in some of these prophecies? Think about the bad news. He's not able to go in. But what happened just before Moses died? He went up to the mountain and what did God show him? He saw it. He was the only one that was able to... And prophets have eyes. They're called seers. But their eyes can see much farther than ours. They can see down through history. And Moses had a chance to look down through history and to see the end result of what God had promised for his people. Who came down on the Mount of Transfiguration to talk with Jesus to encourage him? Moses was one of them. Came down. Moses had probably seen that up on the Mount when God showed him into the land. Showed him what the future was going to be like. Does it sound like God is a little bit more exciting and fun to be around? Yeah, some bad things would happen. He had spent 40 years struggling. But what he saw on that mountain satisfied his soul. Just like it would me if I saw that. And then to be given the privilege of coming down and to be the voice that might encourage Jesus in his toughest time. Would that be enough? 
Think about that. Would that be enough? Wow. Anyway. The Exodus took place in 1445 B.C. Okay. Moses was quite sure his life was peaceful. Did God bring him good news? Yes, he did. He gave him the, the opportunity to lead the people. And that was working for God. Uh, but this also depends upon when the prophecy is fulfilled. Is this prophecy good news? Yeah. They would be out of Egypt and they're going back and God would give them the homeland. They would have been able to go right in the land of promise if they would have had the faith. Let's take another quick one right now. This is perhaps one of the greatest ones. You remember the sacrificial lamb. And you remember right in the Garden of Eden, this all started in Genesis 3.15 where God showed Adam that, uh, uh, that there would come a redeemer down through history that would bruise uh, Satan's head, but in the process would uh, also bruise Christ's heel. Uh, so can you imagine Adam thinking about that and what that meant, that somebody else was paying the price of his sin and how he must have spent hours and days and years, 950, no, was it 930 years for Adam? Seems like I remember 930 years is how long he lived. Long time. Thinking about that lamb that would actually make right his wrong. And how indebted he would be to that lamb. And then in Genesis chapter 22, have you read that one lately? You remember Abraham, who God was always working with. And by the way, Abraham was being worked with because God wanted Abraham to be his friend. And so they had to share things back and forth among those things, prophecies. And God meets with Abraham and says, now I want you to take your son and I want you to take him up to where I'm going to show you. And so he takes his son and he takes him up to the mountain. You know what the name of the mountain was? What? Mount Moriah. Where is Mount Moriah? If you were to go to Jerusalem today, Mount Moriah is right on the Temple Mount, right in the center of Jerusalem. Over it is what today? A mosque. Islamic mosque is built right over about this mount where this happened. Used to be that's where the temple was at. And people would come. So it was built just in recognition of the special thing that happened at Mount Moriah. Where Abraham was to take his son, who is now a young man, and take him to that place. They were together, built an altar, put some, uh, raw, uh, put some uh, wood on top of that altar, and, and the son would ask him, well, where's the sacrifice? And the father tells him, you are the sacrifice. This is the boy that Abraham had waited forever for and finally had gotten. And now God asked for that son to be sacrificed. And Abraham, the father, is doing it. I'm a dad. This gets real to me. This is a big test. Why would God do a thing like that? Go ahead. Abraham didn't have eyes to see what God could see. 
And so God was guiding Abraham, and Abraham was following, not be able to see all that God could see, and he was leading him into an experience that he couldn't even comprehend. But he had to, by faith, walk that experience to discover what he couldn't see, which is what prophecy is all about, to see what we can't see. And so when he took that knife and he was bringing it down on, to take the life of his son, his precious son, and you know, this would be the end of the lineage. How could that possibly be? God had made promises about that. And you remember the angel said, voice from heaven, stop, you know, they got to sacrifice. Oh, that must have been wonderful. But even when they sacrificed that other, that animal, think of what that, that animal's life meant to them. It spared the son's life. Wow. Never again would they offer sacrifice with the same feelings. It spared the son's life. And that was extremely special. And so now when Abraham thinks about it, he's got even something else to think about. What is that other thing he's thinking about? Now Abraham can understand what God the Father is going through in offering his son on Calvary. And he could experience a closeness with God that only that could cement. And so that is good news. And that is really special. And you have, to, you have to see these kind of things in these different things in the Bible, particularly the prophecies, to understand that. The blood on the doorpost, what did that represent? Sacrificial lamb, and how God, the angel of death, would fly over. They were all under a death sentence. But if they had the blood on the doorpost, they were safe. They were safe. And, and I imagine they told that story every Passover. Jesus learned of his mission by watching the death of the lambs. He learned and discovered who he was. So it's about Jesus. How did Adam regard this prophecy? Was it bad news or good news? Well, a little of both. But it wasn't only bad news. The good news made the bad news very tolerable. How did Abraham regard this prophecy? Well, was his first thought good news? He couldn't see it. So sometimes prophecies you don't see right away. What made it good news? When finally he was willing to go through it and then suddenly his mind was opened up and he could see. Was it good news to the Israelites? Yeah, it was good news. And was it good news to Jesus, for Jesus? Well, he discovered who he was, but who was he? He was going to the cross. Jesus understood that. Is it good news to you? Well, what if it means that we have to sacrifice too, like Paul understood, and he would gladly lay down his life? We have to be able to understand where Jesus is at in all of this to be able to say yes to that. Jesus accepted it, so must we. Now let's take another, another prophecy now. Seven-year captivity. What it meant to Jeremiah, the one who gave the prophecy. What did it mean to him, this prophet? Jeremiah in chapter 25 is told that there would be 70 years his people would be in captivity. Okay? The captivity would begin in 605 B.C. And then they would be under Babylon's rule for 70 years. From 605, 70 years counting down. Now watch what you discover about Jeremiah. No braver or more tragic figure ever trod the stage of Israel's history than the prophet Jeremiah. 
His voice, his lot in life through his long lifetime was to declare again and again the simple truth, one message, Judah is doomed. Would you like to go and stand in Washington, D.C. and tell the president and all the senators the United States is doomed every day? You think he'd get a favorable hearing? You'd be run out of town. Throughout his life, he assailed the paganism that Manasseh, the king Manasseh, fostered, attempting to bring revival back to both Judea and Samaria. He wanted a revival in his country of true godliness, and instead there was paganism and there was detached religion all everywhere. False prophets urged resistance and rebellion against Babylon, confident that God would defend Judah. So all the other prophets were saying, fight back. What was Jeremiah saying? It's God's will that Babylon be here to do this. Babylon is God's agent. They thought that he was a traitor. And they wanted to kill him. And God called him to this task. The priestly class, solidly believing God would never allow the temple to be plundered by pagans, promised that God would frustrate Shennacherib. Uh, just as he he frustrated Sennacherib, he would frustrate Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember the story of Sennacherib? And, you know, they went to the temple and they prayed, and then suddenly there was a plague and it broke out and it killed all the opposing army. Remember that? And they were saying, they were reminding the people of that story and saying, that's going to happen again. And Jeremiah said, no, that's not what's going to happen again. He was like one of the only voices that was standing up against this whole direction, wrong direction. True to Yahweh's word, the temple was looted, defiled, and the royal family taken captive. Jeremiah endlessly sought to lead the people into a heart relationship with God. Because of his straightforward condemnation of the religious pretense of his day, he was hated, jeered at, ostracized, continually harassed, and more than once almost killed. He was treated as having committed treason and blasphemy. What was he doing? Just believing and teaching what God had showed him in the prophecy. Is it good news? His spirit almost broke under it, causing him to give away into fits of angry recriminations and depression and even suicidal despair. The real story of Jeremiah just floods through those pages. He hated his office, he longed to quit, but the compulsion of Yahweh would not allow him to be silent. God was calling him to do something horrible, Jeremiah felt. Offered by the Babylonians his choice of going to Babylon or staying, he elected to stay when they deported the rest. But later was taken against his will by Judean zealots to Egypt where he died. And to the end he called continually for spiritual reform. No other prophet has so close an analogy to the earthly life of Jesus. Some saw him, Jesus, as Jeremiah returned. Both lived just prior to the fall of Jerusalem and the temple's fall. Both, both of them, religion had become, in their day, formalized and not spiritual. Both condemned temple commercialism. What did Jesus do? He cleansed it twice, remember? Both were accused of political treason. Did they accuse Jesus of that? Both were tried, persecuted, and imprisoned. Both foretold the temple's destruction, which was blasphemy, they felt. 
Both wept over Jerusalem. Both were rejected by their kinsmen. Both were so tender-hearted, the rabbis compared Jeremiah to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Both loved Israel deeply. Both experienced loneliness. Both enjoyed unusual fellowship with God. Jeremiah was totally free and honest in his communion and conversation with God. And if you read Jeremiah, he's transparent. He's telling God exactly how he feels. And it's not happy news. His life was not happy. If you'd mark any life, it was probably completely sad. A long martyrdom. His personality is more clearly portrayed than any other prophet in the Old Testament. Openly, he shows his heart and his personal feelings as he proclaims God's message. By temperament, he was gentle and timid, yet constantly he had to contend against formidable forces, a seeker after love, but deprived of it by God. Is it good news what God gave Jeremiah to do? He told him at the beginning, nobody's going to pay attention to you, but you're going to do this your whole life. If God gave you that kind of a task, would you consider it good news? <laughs> he didn't either. His Every part of his nature was against it. Look at this. Remember I told you that the Jewish leaders said he was like uh, the suffering servant. And we know Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. Look at this. You think about Jesus on the one side, but think about Jeremiah too. Let's look at it. He was despised and rejected. Whoops. We're not lined up, are we? It's off the page on the left there. Okay. Well, you know what? I wonder if I can do it. No, I can't do it here. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus felt that. Jeremiah felt that. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Both of them felt that. But he, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Uh, let's see. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jeremiah felt like he was bearing the whole thing himself, just like Jesus. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. The sheep before his shearer is dumb, opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And you can go down there, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul... Uh, an offering for sin. Ye shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his, his hand. All right. This is basically a prophecy about Jesus. The Jews said it also represented what Jeremiah went through. Do you learn how, through this passage here, where the good news is at? What was God entrusting to Jeremiah which was good news? Tell me. Think about it. It's kind of like right on the nose, right here, right in front of you. Can you find it? Jeremiah was walking the same path as Jesus. 
He got a chance to understand, and God craves this. We learned it about Abraham. We learned it about Methuselah. We learned it about all the prophecies. It's not abstract information. We live it. We experience it. He wants us to understand him. And so Jeremiah, as horrible as it was for him to go through, had an opportunity to be one of the first ones that really understood what Jesus was going through. He may not have felt it was good news for him, but in heaven, I think they were very happy that Jeremiah, there was somebody on earth that understood. And that is what? Good news. Can you see that? That is good news. So if God were to ask you to do a hard thing like he did Paul, he might even tell you how hard it's going to be. Would you consider it good news if you knew that in doing that, you were being able to brought into an experience that helped you to understand and appreciate what Jesus had done for you? Would that be good news then? Paul says basically that's what it was for him. Empathetic connection with Jesus. Who benefits from all of his suffering? Well, all of us. Is there a message here for us? How can suffering be good news? Well, we know it can be. Okay, let's continue on. There's a, well, that was uh, Jeremiah. Now there's another person in this prophecy. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who is going to be in charge of God's family when they are in captivity. Do you know about Nebuchadnezzar? He had no intention of deporting the Jewish population. They were to remain in Jerusalem for their humbled and chastened leaders, just they, would, uh, to return to. Had they been willing to submit, the city and its temple would have been preserved. But their stubbornness resulted in three deportations, 605, 597, and 586. Nebuchadnezzar was to act as God's servant. Most of the principles found in the ancient civil codes of our entire world were Hammurabi's codes, and they came from Nebuchadnezzar's background. Nebuchadnezzar came from a world that epitomized humanity, the importance of humanity. And out of that came Hammurabi's code, which is the foundation for modern law in our country today. At 20 years of age, his father died. He now is the sole ruler of the greatest empire, destined to become the greatest empire in the world. Very human ruler, humane ruler. He didn't kill his enemies. Instead, he put them to work. Babylon was a cutting edge of science, engineering, architecture, mathematics, astronomy, and government. Everyone prospered, including the Jews. That's where the Jewish banking community got started. You hear about the Jews and all the banking that they do? while they were enslaved in Babylon. The Marishi brothers. You didn't know that? Yeah. So this, this captivity, notice this. They go from their country, and now Daniel and his companions are now in seats of authority in Nebuchadnezzar's government. That was how humane he was. He didn't push them down. He elevated them up. In their home country, it was going to get worse and worse and worse. God was freeing them by taking them to Babylon under a king who was humane. Pride kept them from yielding fully to Yahweh at the end of seven years of insanity, kept him. Uh, this is, we're talking about Nebuchadnezzar. I'm talking about his character. 
So he still had an issue of pride, but at seven years of insanity, which God inflicted upon him because of his pride, he finally came out of it, and he realized who God was. You could read some of those quotations down there, and one of my favorite writers, who I have great confidence in, said that he was totally converted, and we're going to see this man in heaven, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, wouldn't that be exciting? Wouldn't that be great? Think about when Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar re-meet in heaven. Okay, so you can see that it's good news for Nebuchadnezzar because he was introduced to Daniel. Daniel introduced him to God. And through the two of them, Nebuchadnezzar became a converted man. And he's got a bright future ahead of him, even though he died. But I want to tell you another story connected to this. And some of you know about this story. Maybe some of you haven't made this connection before. It's a coincidence? Maybe not. Uh, About 100 years prior to this time, King Hezekiah uh, was told that he was going to die. And a prophet came to deliver the news. And Hezekiah said, I'm a good king. God, don't let me die. I want to live longer. And God answered his prayer, came uh, the pro- sent for the prophet to come back, and the prophet said, yes, you'll, you'll have 15 more years. Well, I want proof, Hezekiah said. What kind of proof did he want? The word of the Lord isn't sufficient? I would say, well, have it your way, Hezekiah. <laughs> you know, go ahead, die, you fix it. You want proof? Oh, no, God is long-suffering. Isn't that amazing? He's long-suffering. And so Hezekiah said, I want some really outstanding proof. What did he ask for? The dial to go back on the sundial. The shadow to go back. To prove, 15 degrees, to prove that he would get 15 years. Am I right? Isn't that a pretty bold thing to ask of God? Well, it happened. I don't understand the science in that at all. It's way beyond me. But I don't understand the worldwide flood. I don't understand all kinds of stuff, matter of fact. But we know that those things happen. But anyway, one of the proofs that something did happen was because Babylon, who studies the stars and all that stuff, they're wise men, they sent um, emissaries to King Hezekiah to say, what happened? We're trying to figure out why this happened. The sundial going back, all of this. How did that possibly be? And what did Hezekiah do? Do you remember the story? It's told in the Bible. He showed him around his empire. He showed him all of his wealth, these Babylonian emissaries. And instead of talking about the God who heard the prayer of a humble king, not so humble, (laughs) and answered his prayer, he showed him the wealth. When they went back to Babylon, they told the story of how much wealth there was in Jerusalem. So a hundred years later, when Nebuchadnezzar comes, he knows there's wealth in that temple. And he raids it. And he takes it back. Because of Hezekiah's foolishness. It's interesting how all these things are tied together. You know. And you can see the hand of God and the hand of man taking place in all of these kind of things. What role did Nebuchadnezzar play in bringing good news? What role did he play? He was the one that God was using to protect his people during a tough time. Right? He was bringing good news to them. What kind of a man was he? He was a humble man. That's the man that God could use. Right? And he was willing to uh, be humbled, and he needed seven years of insanity to learn to do that. How did God use him? Amazing ways to protect his people. And through Nebuchadnezzar and through Daniel... God was able to give an amazing account of what future history would all be about. Well, I'm going to get now to the next one here because time is going. 
Next one is Belshazzar. There's several characters in the 70-year captivity. And Belshazzar was not the, um, the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Rather, he married the uh, wife of uh, the descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. And um, so he was in the lineage. But he was only a co-ruler of Babylon at the end of Babylon's history. And the Bible says that at the end of 70 years, they would be freed. But there was a feast, the Feast of Belshazzar, which marked the end of that. Let me tell you the story. Not long before this, Babylon lay in ruins, thanks to the Syrians, who were very cruel people. Nebuchadnezzar accepted the surrender of Jerusalem when Neo-Babylonia, his kingdom, was only 20 years old. It was a brand new kingdom. Her new king, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, started on an ambitious plan with his son to make Babylon the greatest city and empire on earth. In less than 50 years from burning Jerusalem, Babylon itself was conquered by the Persians. So he had a very short reign uh, uh, as, as head of the world, so to speak. Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar's daughter and the eldest son of Nabonidus, the heir apparent. Belshazzar was 36 years old. He knew Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. He was probably about seven years old when Nebuchadnezzar went insane and 14 when his mind returned to him. Nabonidus was, a cruel to the, was cruel to the citizens of Babylon, forcing them to work in labor gangs and taxing them heavily. So when his troops met the forces of the conqueror Cyrus, 115 miles north of Babylon, they rebelled against their ruler in favor of Cyrus. A portion of the forces went with Belshazzar to Babylon. And then on October 12, pay attention to this, October 12, we know the exact date, 539. We get that from the Nabonidus Chronicle. They were celebrating a feast in Babylon. You've heard about this feast, the Feast of Belshazzar? That day, Babylon would fall. Probably they were using in this feast the gold and silver taken from Solomon's temple and maybe even the lampstand in the temple to light the room. When suddenly a bloodless hand writes on the wall, many, many, tickle, you farsome, you are weighed in the balances and found wanting. At this time, Daniel, who was retired from his role, was about 80 years of age, he was called in because they had, he was the only one they knew that could probably interpret all of this. He read the handwriting on the wall to them, and the Greek historians tell us that Euphrates was divided by the soldiers that very night. It was diverted, and um, the water went this way, and the soldiers walked right in the creek beds, the river beds, and they conquered Babylon that night and slayed uh, Belshazzar because he rose his sword to defend himself and he died that night. Now, where's the good news in this story? No good news for these men, right? It wasn't about them, nor for their people. What was God doing? He was preparing people for something else. Look at Cyrus. This is the uh, next part. Liberation. Cyrus, listen to this story. This is an amazing story. You've probably never heard this before. He was named. Have you known anybody that was named 133 years before they were conceived? Cyrus was. The prophet named him and told what his work would be 175 years after his conception. There's the verses. He was born in a place called Ecbatania in Iran in the kingdom of the Medes below a 12,000-foot mountain range filled with forests and fragrant scents. Twice in the same night, the king of his home country dreamed about a vine and later about a flood of water, both of which would cover the entire earth, 
These, the flood of water and the vine, would be coming from his daughter, Mandane, betrothed to Mary Cambyses of Persia. You staying with me so far? He had this dream. Two dreams. And Stiagus' advisor suggested this meant that from his daughter would come a grandchild who would rule the world. Does God give dreams to other people? There was only one thing to do, according to Astygus, kill the child the moment it's born. After they were married, the king made his son-in-law, Cambyses, promise to bring Mandane back to Ecbatania for his grandson's birth. After Cyrus was born, he further persuaded his daughter and son-in-law to leave the child with them to comfort the queen grandmother. But what was he really going to do? Kill the child. And so a plot was arranged. He entrusts the killing of his grandson to a trusted prince called Harbogath, telling him of his dreams and that on a certain date little Cyrus would be delivered to him and he was supposed to kill him. We have all of this written down in the history of these people. He tells, us, he tells no one but his wife who urged him to refuse to be a party of this deed. If he must die, let him be killed by the hands of another, but not by Harbogus. Accepting her counsel, he thought immediately of his chief shepherd, the royal chief shepherd, who would certainly do his bidding. When the time came, Mithridus, the shepherd, came, even though his wife was about to deliver their own child. The prince handed over to him the infant with instructions that he were to take him into the hills and leave him to be devoured by the wolves. As soon as the child was dead, he was to inform Harbogath of the fact in a sealed statement that he would send to him. Uh, stunned, <laughs> T is not there, is it? Stunned, the shepherd dared not reply, but left immediately with the baby in his arms. In the days the child was in his charge, a bond was created between the intended murderer and the child. Upon arriving home, he learns that his own child had been born and only lived four days. Are you seeing what's going to happen here? His wife and he decided they knew what they were to do. Switch the children. Right? This is all down in the legends of the day. Keep the live child as theirs, expose the dead to the wolves, and inform Harbogus that the deed had been done. That's not the end of the story. Think about God, what he's doing here. Mandate and Because remember, 130 years before, it had been written down, his name was there. Had to happen. Mandate and Cambyses were told that their child had been taken... Uh, were told that their child had been taken ill and died. And soon after, surprisingly, Astigas had his own child. Um, frail, small boy, which they named Exus. The physician suggested he be sent to the hill country, the service of the cheap shepherd, to improve his health. At that time, Cyrus, who had survived, of course, by this scheme, was 10 years of age, and he would play with the prince. And they played the game, Who Wants to Be King?, Cyrus won. This sounds like a fable, doesn't it? Cyrus won, but Exus refused to pledge allegiance to, to Cyrus. And for that, he was smartly punished. Word reached the king, who felt that Cyrus, whose name was Darcy at this time, should be punished. However, when standing before the king, Darcy handles himself so well, it startled the king. The king thought, this child is no ordinary child. Looking directly at Mitridates, Mitridates, he asked, is this your son? 
Well, the ruse is up. The shepherd knew he had to answer correctly, honestly, and the whole story comes out. Both Darcy and the king turned pale. Convinced that destiny had overruled his scheme, he confessed what he had done and restored Cyrus to his parents. Imagine that. Cyrus guided his kingdom to worldwide prominence. Only Babylon stood in his way. By 539, he peacefully entered Babylon to the cheers of the Babylonians. Known as a great conqueror, he is best remembered for his unprecedented tolerance, magnanimous attitude toward those he defeated. Isaiah had already informed about this. So where was the good news in this story? That no matter what men may do, what's God going to do? Going to make it happen. God would work behind the scenes ahead of time to provide for his people. He was always busy making things work out. His will will be performed. Has God told us about things in our day? Does this story encourage us that maybe he will work out those things to work them out too? as amazingly as he worked out this one. This was a very important date that establishes a lot of history. Is God working behind the scenes in our lives today? Has he already written how our story ends? Yes. What about the timing? Yes. He's made statements. Well, not in detail about us. Is that good news? Yes. And so I want you to, when you look at the Bible, and when you look at prophecies or anything, I want you to get in the habit of of pausing and asking these questions. Is this good news? And if you don't know the answer, you probably aren't understanding the story yet. Get into it a little differently. Search for the gospel. Seek to define the gospel in all the stories of the Bible. Even in some things, as we were talking about today, prophecies, which you think, that's kind of hard to look for the gospel. No, there's some amazing stories there. And I just picked a few to tell you about that. The good news, the gospel, is all through the Bible. God wants us to read the Bible and discover that. Not just the facts, but that. That's what the facts are there to teach about the gospel. So, the gospel is in prophecy, isn't it? Just like it's in the other things we've talked about as well.